Well, go ahead and have a seat. Welcome to Village Church. If this is your first time here, my name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here at Village Church. And as always, I am thankful and grateful to see each and every one of you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be starting in verse 15 this morning. This is our third sermon uh, in our series where we're going through the entire book of Colossians. And thus far, what we've seen is Paul has addressed the church through a greeting that entailed Paul's hope through the gospel and in the gospel for the church at Colossae, as well as his prayer for how they would grow in the gospel and through the gospel. Paul very much rooted the solution to the issues that they were dealing with where false doctrine was concerned uh, in growing in many areas of discipleship. Paul wanted them to anchor themselves to the truth of Scripture. He wanted them to seek to obey all that it commands, and all while growing in their knowledge and experience of the power that God would give them through faith in Jesus Christ to live for His purposes. He focuses, excuse me, he focuses these first few chapters on both the identity and the supremacy of Jesus Christ over all of creation and points specifically to the hope that they were to have of salvation in him and in him alone. He wanted them to anchor themselves to the truth of Scripture. He wanted them to realize that it is through Jesus that they were going to be able to accomplish all that Scripture had entailed for them to do. But then in verse 14, what you covered last week, he shifts his focus to an argument. And he begins to make an argument about Jesus Christ. He doesn't shift, as many would expect him to, again, to talking about the Colossian people themselves, but rather he defines for them who Jesus is and why it is that Jesus can be such a trusted Savior. And through that, he's going to begin to refute what many have called what the Colossian controversy. But he does this by declaring the truth of Jesus rather than simply refuting the specific error. If you remember from the first sermon in Colossians, he focused on a controversy that was about the person of Jesus, the reality of who he was. And he refutes what the Greeks had brought into the church, which had been really a heresy that had formed kind of a philosophic dualism in which they believed that the spirit was good, but anything material, anything of this physical world was necessarily evil. Therefore, if Christ was good, then he couldn't have possibly had a physical body. But then on the flip side, they also believed that since God becoming man is an absurd statement, and many had claimed that they had actually met the physical Jesus Christ, that Jesus couldn't have possibly been God since he was, in fact, a human being. As the chapters unfold, this is actually going to lead to the introduction in the Colossian church that many were trying to get them to focus on mystical practices and even a Gnostic philosophy that Paul is going to refute. But where he begins is by pointing to the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things. And he presents to them really the most essential truth of the historic Christian faith, that Christianity is in Christ and Christ is in fact God. He's the Lord over heaven and earth. He's the Lord over his church. He's the Lord over redemption. He's the Lord over all of creation. And for anyone to have life, then you must submit to Jesus Christ in absolutely all things. I want to begin reading in verse 15. Paul writes and he says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And Paul begins really with a simple series of statements that basically say one key fact. Number one this morning, Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth. Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth. And what you're going to see as we go through this series of verses is that he's presenting to you Jesus' lordship over two things. First, he begins in this section in verses 15 through 17 by presenting Jesus as the Lord over all of creation. And by creation, what he means is the first creation. That creation that goes all the way back to the book of Genesis where God speaks and everything exists. And then he reaches into the dust of the ground and forms humanity. And he says, Jesus is, in fact, the Lord over that. But then as you're going to see, he's then going to stretch it into the fact that Jesus is the Lord over the new creation because of what he does in his death, burial, and resurrection. The focus that Paul carries, though, into the first creation in this first section is to state his deity. Yes, he is God, but he's more than just God because you have to apply what it means to be God. He's meaning to show that Jesus has supremacy over all things in the universe. And this is the basis, really, for which the book of Colossians was written. He does mean to say that apart from Jesus, quite simply, there is no Christianity. But he doesn't reduce it to that. The greater point here, according to Paul, is that without Jesus, not only is there no Christianity, but there's nothing else either. Without Jesus, he's saying, there is no creation at all. Because he is, in fact, the creator God Therefore, understand the deity of Christ has greater ramifications than most people think through. Many, maybe even you, have adopted a version of Christianity in which the lordship of Jesus is reduced kind of to your own personal spirituality. Many people will think or even say, sure, Jesus is the Lord of my life through my faith. Many will say, sure, my discipleship depends on Jesus. Many will even say, yes, sure, I need to obey Jesus with my life. Sure, I depend on Jesus and submit to him in all things. But then in the next breath, maybe you would say, but you can't expect non-believers to obey Jesus. Many will then stretch it out and say, well, yes, Jesus is my Lord, but that doesn't mean he's your Lord. That doesn't mean that he's everyone's Lord because it's only through faith that Jesus can be your Lord. But look at what Paul says. Paul doesn't talk about my personal Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. No, Paul talks about the Lord, Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying is, is that no matter what you think about Jesus, no matter what you personally believe about Jesus, no matter what you personally assent to about Jesus Christ, whether you believe him or whether you don't believe him, Jesus is Lord of all the earth. Therefore, if you are in the earth, guess who your Lord is? It's Jesus Christ. 
You can deny him. You can rebel against him. You can run away from him. But that does nothing to discount the reality that Jesus Christ is absolutely Lord of everyone and everything. Paul is meaning to lay out this statement here that he furthers throughout the rest of the book, specifically in these first three chapters, that the lordship of Christ can never and must never be reduced to just your life. Jesus is, in fact, preeminent over all of creation because all of creation is sourced in Jesus Christ. And he begins with this all-important statement in verse 15 that he is the image of the invisible God. Now note that this is not a statement that he is equal to the image of God that is in you. If you note in Genesis chapter 1, what does the Godhead say? He says, let us make man in our image. And so when he reaches under the dust of the ground, he forms man and he takes a rib out of Adam and forms Eve. How does he give us life? It says that he breathed life into Adam. And that's what we mean by saying that we have a soul. That's what sets us apart from all of creation as humanity. We bear what is the breath of God or the image of God in our lives. Yes, sin has corrupted it greatly. But every human being on this earth bears the image of God. But in verse 15, when he says he is the image of the invisible God, he's not saying that. What he's saying is that if you've looked at Jesus Christ, you've looked at God himself. He's saying he is the very revelation. He is a sufficient standard by which you can judge God because he is very much God. He is unique in that he reveals the image of God in an unparalleled way because he is God incarnate. He is God become a human being. Look at what Jesus himself says in John chapter 14. In John 14, starting in verse 8, it says, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. I love what Philip says here because he's basically saying, Jesus, you're a great guy, but I want to see God. He's like, in everything that you've told me, you haven't shown me God. Show me the Father. And Jesus, in an offended way, looks back in verse 9, and Jesus said to Philip, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus doesn't look to Philip and say, Philip, look within yourself and you will see the reality of God. That's how we know what verse 15 says about Jesus is not what Genesis chapter 1 means by the fact that we bear the image of God. It means something greater. It means something more. It means that Jesus bears fullness of God, as he will say. He doesn't look to Philip and say, Philip, you've been missing it all along. The light of God is in you. That's what many of us want to believe. That's what the new age element and philosophies will tell us to believe. No, Jesus is peculiar in that when you look at him, he's saying that is a sufficient revelation of who God is. Therefore, if you want to know God, who do you need to know? You need to know Jesus Christ. That is never said in any of the revelation of God about anyone else in human history. It is reserved only for Jesus himself. Jesus states that he is the image of God made manifest in physical form. Because Jesus 
has something that I don't have and you don't have. He has the incommunicable attributes of God. In other words, there are things that God has that I don't. Note that we do not share God's image and perfect morality. We're sinful. God is not. Jesus is not. We do not share his image in being perfect in eternality because we are marred by our sin, nor do we share the attributes that he has in omnipotence, omniscience. Jesus bears all of the image of God, but note further, God is holy. I am not. Jesus is holy because he is God. Friends, Jesus perfectly represents God in every single way. Therefore, he is sufficient in his deity. And Jesus is supreme in authority over all creation, which I am not, to create and rule the first creation. Note what he says in the next stanza. I promise the rest of it won't be this tedious. He says that he is the firstborn of all creation. Now some, specifically Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, may come to your door and share a good news about Jesus Christ that is no good news at all because they would rob Jesus of his eternality. And if you rob Jesus of his eternality, you rob Jesus of his deity. And then you go back to the first statement and you rob all of the validity of what Paul first says, that he is the image of the invisible God. Saying that he is the firstborn of all creation is not a statement of his biology, nor is it a statement of his beginning point. Firstborn literally means supreme over. The cultists will tell you that being labeled as the firstborn or elsewhere in scripture it says that he is the begotten son means that Jesus cannot in fact be the eternal God. But what they miss is that this is actually a statement of preeminence rather than biology. It is a statement and a designation that actually is used in the Old Testament to describe God's relationship with Israel. In Exodus 4.22, God speaking to Moses says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son son. Now, no one would look at that and say, he's clearly talking about the beginning point of Israel. No, he's talking about the preeminence of Israel among all creation. He is very much looking to Moses and saying, Israel is supreme among the nations. And what he's saying about Jesus is that Jesus is supreme over all of creation. This is a designation. This is a rank the list then that you see in verse 16 confirms that. Look at what it says. It says, By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Verse 16 is actually an explanation of verse 15. He's saying, this is what I mean by what I'm saying, the firstborn of all creation. There is nothing in existence that Jesus himself did not create. And you cannot miss what he's saying. He's saying Jesus is God. He's saying the one in Genesis that you see speaking the earth into existence, speaking the cosmos into reality, that is Jesus Himself. It is the how and the why of existence. And he wields his authority and lordship over everything. The great theologian Kuiper once said, There is no square inch of the universe that God does not point to and say, Mine. 
And by God, we're talking about Jesus. You'll see another heresy that comes up further in the book of Colossians that Paul refutes here. Jesus is no mere being, nor is Jesus somehow from an angelic line of beings. Rather, Jesus is the Lord and source of all creation, according to this text. John chapter 1 verse 3 makes it clear that everything that exists was created by Him. You see, he's pointing out the supremacy of Jesus Christ over all things because this is the foundation upon which everything he's going to say in this book about faith, everything that he's going to say about the person, the work, the deity of Jesus Christ is built on this very foundation. More than that, all of creation doesn't just exist from Jesus. Look at the end of verse 17. All of creation exists for Jesus, excuse me, the end of verse 16. It is all for him. Every creative activity of God is sourced in Jesus and finds its reason for existing in Jesus Christ. Not only that, but look at verse 17. It reveals that everything holds together also through the power of Jesus He's before all things. In him, all things hold together. To know Jesus is to know the one on whom everything depends to exist. And all scientific research and scientific studies, which is the new God, says trust the science. But note that in all of the scientific measurements, which are profoundly helpful, they're a gift from God to us that we can know the things that we know. Note that science still can't explain many things. You know, science can't even explain science. Science cannot tell you why science exists. Science also cannot tell you why all of this holds together in perfect symmetry. Science cannot explain to you why things do not move out of line into chaotic states. Yet that's exactly what Scripture explains to us. Scripture explains to us everything holds together by the hand of our sovereign and supreme Lord, Jesus Christ. But note, it's not just an explanation for why everything doesn't kind of cascade off into oblivion. Have you ever felt chaotic in your life? Like everything's going to fall apart at any minute? Have you ever asked yourself why life holds together? Why your life holds together? See, God is not some deistic deity who creates and then walks away and everything just goes the way that it goes. No, he's imminent where creation is concerned. He's personal in his control over all things. And the reason that with all of the stresses and all of the anxieties in life that you can still lay your head on a pillow at night and find perfect rest if you're a follower of Jesus is because you know that no matter how things may look, that there is a God who is holding all things together. And he is holding you together. That's why life is so difficult to face. I mean, it's difficult to face if you are a Christian. It's impossible to face, I believe, if you're not a Christian. Because you have no hope. 
You have no purpose. You have no objective Lord in whom all things depend and on whom all things depend. But no matter how hard things look, I walk through this world undaunted by anything that happens around me. And I lay my head on a pillow at night, no matter what anyone does to me, because I know that not only is he holding the oxygen in the atmosphere to give me breath of life, but he is holding my inner self together so that I can walk through this this world in peace. Friends, if you follow Jesus Christ, if you give your life to Christ, no matter what decisions anyone makes around you that may cause you trouble, you can still find perfect rest because while they may not believe, you know he's holding you together every moment. Friend, you shouldn't try to make it through a single day of existence without deep faith and trust in the reality that Jesus is perfect personally, holding you together. He's a personal Lord. He is a personal Savior. But number two this morning, he is also the center and reason for all creation. And so everything that I've said thus far is very important for us to understand the world. That's the Christian worldview. But how many of you have spent countless months years even searching for significance saying not why do people exist but why do I exist why am I here you're looking for a reason for your life you're looking for a purpose for why you exist you're looking for the reason why you can do anything and why you can bring any life into the world and the good news of the gospel is that he doesn't just tell us Jesus is supreme he tells us how he tells us how Jesus wields his supremacy look in verse 18 And Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." This is where he goes from the first creation, everything that just is, to the new creation, everything that he is doing inside of it. And he says that he wields his purpose through his body, the church, but then he explains how the church came to existence. These texts lay out really what is the Christian worldview. And I'll tell you, this has been the predominant worldview throughout all of human history. We've forgotten that in contemporary modern history. But throughout world history, this is the predominant worldview. Why don't we believe it? Well, theologian Stephen Wellam points out that human sinfulness seeks to obscure this reality. That until the age or the era that was called the the Enlightenment, rather, people accepted that for us to know the reason for existence itself, God must reveal himself to us. But in the era that's called the Enlightenment and all of the the false worldviews that came out of it, even to this day, man has sought answers from within him or herself. Rather than what the first era was built on faith Seeking understanding, humanity began to turn to the opposite. I believe what I can understand. Therefore, the human definition of reason 
possibly what you have been conditioned to believe much of your life has convinced you that for something to be true, or even for something to be real, it must fit your criteria for what is possible or what is reasonable. And what the Apostle Paul is actually telling the Colossian church is that for them to understand the world around them and why they even exist and live within it, they need God to reveal himself. They need God to intervene in their lives and choose to give them the revelation of his existence. And what Paul is saying is good news. He has. He's given himself in his perfect authoritative word, the scriptures, And he's also come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So Jesus not only created all, not only does Jesus reign over all, but then Paul turns to what the point of his coming into creation was for. It was in order to redeem and renew his creation from sin. Note how Jesus wields his authority through the work of his life, death, and resurrection. It says that he did this to be the head of the body, the church. And what that means is, is that you exist not to build your own version of purpose. Not even your own version of church. Because I don't know about you, but the decisions that I make have profound effects on my body. Some good, many bad. (laughs) But my body isn't dictating Apart from my head, what it should do, rather, that would be a great disability. Rather, my head makes decisions that affect my body. And what he says is is that Jesus is the one who makes the decisions for his church. The church exists for the design that Jesus gives it. The church exists for the mission that Jesus gives it. The church exists for the purposes that Jesus gives it. But also the church exists to act in the ways and for the ways that he has determined for it to exist. And if you think that means we don't get say in how this works, that's true. But by his grace, he's given us his revelation so that we can see it. And the good news is that we need intervention by God to have truth. And Jesus has intervened to reveal himself as the truth. Yes, natural creation and natural law speak to the existence of God and even speaks to the reign of God over all that is, but God has been more gracious. He's been gracious enough to reveal himself in specific and special ways. How's he done that? Well, Luke 24, 26 through 27 reveals Jesus after his resurrection. And Jesus explains from the entirety of Scripture that it is all a revelation about Him that leads us to Him and reveals to us His glory. Jesus speaking to two men on the road says, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. In other words, he says, you want to know what and who the Bible is about? By the way, the Bible's not about you. The Bible's about Jesus Christ. The Bible is for Jesus Christ and is to lead us to the glory of Jesus Christ. And Paul, in Colossians 1, starting in 18 and 19, 
He states that Jesus reigns over the church with three titles. The first title that he gives Jesus is, as I just said, the head of the church. That the church is to be a representative of the lordship of Jesus Christ over all things. We do as he wishes. We submit to his commands. Jesus doesn't need a pope because Jesus is sufficient to lead the church through his word to which we must submit. But then he continues and he gives him another title. The second one is that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. But note that he gives explanation before he gives the title. The first term that he uses before firstborn from the dead is that he's the beginning. This means that he is the source and authority for the church. But it also speaks to the new life and creation that comes from where? Well, the church wouldn't exist without the resurrection. So how does he get the title, the firstborn from the dead? I'll tell you how. By being the firstborn from the dead. Again, the same title that we saw a few verses previous to talk about his reign being supreme over the first creation. Now he's saying that his resurrection makes him supreme over the new creation by resurrection from the dead. And he wants to gift that to all who believe. You see, friends, this is about the resurrection for all who believe. But if you don't believe, this isn't accomplished for you. His resurrection is what reveals his preeminence. Friend, if you want to know God, if you want freedom from the curse of sin, you will only ever know. You will only ever know and find new life and ultimate freedom from Jesus Christ because he is in human history the only one that by his own strength got up out of the grave. But there's a third statement there about Jesus that his resurrection has gained him. It says that Jesus is preeminent. You see, friends, this is significant. And that it does reveal, yes, that he's the head of the church. But I think that the Apostle Paul says that he's preeminent because he wants us to understand he's not just the head of the church. He's also the head of everything else. That is the point that he made in the first Three verses is the same point that he's making here. You can deny him. You can leave the church. You can exist for a purpose outside of the church, his body that he is building. That will do nothing to discount his lordship over your life. Because the church is to be a picture of the new creation. Yes, through faith. Yes, through submission. Yes, through living out the reality of the lordship of Jesus Christ in all things. But his preeminence actually comes from the fact that he is the incarnate Christ. He is the God man. He's the only one to become a human being because he is the only Lord God that exists. He's God become human being. But again, he doesn't just stop there. In verses 19 through 20, he says that it is through him that all things can be reconciled to God. And that is the ultimate glory of the gospel. This is how humanity, a humanity that knows very well our sinful state. Friend, I do not have to talk to anyone long, believer or unbeliever alike, to convince anybody that things are not as they should be. 
You watch the news for 30 seconds this weekend, and if something doesn't bubble up inside of you saying, this is not as it should be, well, then you're not paying attention. But it's not just external events. I don't have to talk to anyone about their personal lives for very long to convince you. You are not as you should be. You've experienced the curse of sin. You have experienced the problem of sin in your own life. You have experienced personal choices that have brought pain into your life. But here's the key. Verse 19 says, excuse me, verse 20 says, that as the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him and through him to do what? To reconcile to himself all things. And you might be getting a very interesting thing from this text because it seems like everything comes from Jesus. Everything goes through Jesus. But then know what he says there. Everything's going to come back to him. It's almost as if it's all about Jesus. It's almost as if Jesus is the point of everything. It's almost as if Christ is preeminent in and on and for and through and to all things. But here's the amazing news that you need to know that if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you may be holding on to hope that all of your wishes to rob from him that preeminence, even if you say, I will go to hell rather than submit to him. Who do you think created that? Friends, you will never escape his lordship. It will either work to your benefit or it will etern eternally work to your detriment. Because number three this morning, only through Jesus can you know God and have life. That's it. That's it. Note he says in verse 20, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. What authority? But as it do, how does he do it? Making peace by the blood on his cross. Friends, without the cross, we can't know him. Without the cross, you can't know him. Do you feel the weight of sin? Do you feel the pain of the curse? This sovereign, supreme, preeminent being willingly chose to allow sinful, cursed human beings to nail him to a cross for you. Look at verse 21. And you. I know some of you, you come to church for inspiration. Well, here's the part where you come in. But it's not good news. <laughs> Keep reading. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil things. Why would he tell you that? 
Why in all that he's saying about Jesus and all of this amazing news, I mean, even saying in him to reconcile to himself all things through what he has done on the cross, only God can do that for you. And now he wants to give you very bad news. And I will tell you why he has to give you the very bad news, because only Jesus can save you from the wrath that God has for sin. That's it. Verse 21 actually explains why verses 15 through 19 are a problem for us. I mean, in all of those texts, it says Jesus is sovereign. He is supreme. He is preeminent. He is the supreme Lord of all and has clearly revealed himself to everyone. What an amazing statement from the Apostle Paul. Yet I am always so surprised and amazed when I talk to people about the wonderful, great gospel of Jesus Christ and they reject it. They say, no. In a world that is consumed with false ideology, a world that is consumed by the curse of sin, you must ask yourself at some point, if you are a follower of Jesus, how could anyone reject such a great God and King? And here is how he explains it. He says, your sin alienates you from God, but it also makes you hostile in your thoughts. You can't think straight. That's sinful. My own mind is warped against the supreme Lord of all that is. But it is because mankind is alienated from God, hostile in mind towards God. And only then do you start doing the evil deeds that keep you from God. We do that which God commanded us not to do. Sin is the problem. I recently heard a friend state that many people reject God because of what atheists have called the problem of evil. This is the problem that they say if God is so good and God is so sovereign, then how can evil exist? How can suffering exist in this world? But the reality, my friend said, is that it is only a problem if you see no evil in the mirror looking back at you. The problem is not God. The problem is in verse 21. The problem is me. I am hostile in mind. I do evil deeds. There's ultimately, I don't tell you in all that I've read, all the people that I've talked to, there is no reason on earth to reject Jesus Christ. There's no reason to reject the reality of God. There's no logic behind it. There's only sin that makes human think this, humans think this way. But look at this amazing way that the text goes. Verse 22. Jesus has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. There's an amazing circle that you go on. He does it, he accomplishes it, but then it has to come back to him. I think Romans chapter 5 explains this really well when it states, since therefore... We have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, bonus round, 
we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Here's why I think that is so helpful. Paul reveals in the first parts of the text that we read in this sermon, the immensity of Jesus Christ. There is no hyperbole. There is no exaggeration. He is supreme over all. And then from verses 20 through 23, he says that immense, involved, righteous, holy, supreme God, he wants to forgive your sin. He wants to erase his own wrath towards you by reconciling your relationship with God, by taking the debt and penalty for your sin. Why? So that you, sinner, can move from God's wrath to God's favor by God's action. You can not save yourself. Only Jesus, by His grace, can save you. Verse 22 states, you think about this. Jesus did it all to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before Himself to the Father. You are none of those things. I know from personal experience, I am none of those things. I'm not holy, I'm not blameless, and I'm certainly not above reproach. But Jesus is all of those things according to the text. And he desires to gift all three of those things to you. But here's the fascinating thing. So that he can present you to himself without sin so that he doesn't have to pour his wrath on you for all eternity because he wants to pour his love on you for all eternity. That's a great exchange. And that is also why you must submit in all things to the Lord Jesus Christ. You must. You must. There is no other alternative. This is it and Ephesians 1 tells us what Jesus is doing right now with it. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I love how Paul doesn't stop the list until you stop objecting. He's like, I'm throwing it all at you. 
Jesus is ruling and Jesus is reigning through and over his church. He has immeasurable power still. And the resurrection has proclaimed for all time that Jesus rules with authority, power, dominion above every name that is to be named in every age. Everything is under his feet. And so what does that mean? What's the point? Look at verse 23. If. If indeed you continue in the faith. What's Paul talking about there? He's talking about why the truth of who Jesus is is so important. And how destructive allowing any false doctrine to come into the church would be on the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Here is the problem with false doctrine about Jesus. If you believe lies, it means you don't believe the gospel. And Paul says that he has given them the truth of Jesus Christ. And he is saying that everything depends on that truth. The only way to continue in the faith is to continue in the truth by submitting and giving your entire life to it. Do not shift. Do not entertain the lies of the enemy in any false ideology, in any false doctrine, and do not believe the lies of wicked philosophies. Friends, you shift from the hope of the gospel when you believe the lies of the enemy. Submit to Jesus. And therefore, you are submitting to God. But submit to the real Jesus that has shown who he is through Scripture, who he is through his life, death, and resurrection. And you follow him with everything you have. And never deviate from that path. A few ex explanation or application points rather this morning. <laughs> First, form your view of all things through God's revelation. Don't depend on human reason, it's flawed. Depend on the revelation of God. See the world through the lens of Scripture because it is perfect. Secondly, submit to Jesus' authority. He's not just your personal Lord and Savior, He's the Lord of all. He is God. Thirdly, build Jesus' church. Paul has revealed there, there are no Lone Ranger Christians. You are not on a personal journey with Jesus. You've been given a mission and you've been given a people that if you're a follower of Jesus, you belong to God's people, the church. Build it. And then finally, anchor your life to the truth of Jesus Christ and never deviate from it.